production of The Speculist, and you can find us online at speculist.com, or you can go straight to the blog and find us at blog.speculist.com. On either this show or on the website, we talk about the future. We talk about unfolding possibilities. We talk about emerging technologies. We talk about a future that we believe that's arriving very soon that we think we'll all want to live to see. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me on the line, I have my Co-host, co-blogger, and co-futurist, Stephen Gordon. How you doing, Stephen? Doing great, Phil. And we've got another caller, and I bet that's our other guest joining us at this point. So I'm going to just bring him into the line and see if, see if that's who we're, if we've got who I hope we have. Let's see who we have. Hey, guys. Uh, it's, it's Tyler. Hey, Tyler. Glad you joined us. Tyler, Absolutely. welcome Thanks. to Fast Forward Radio. Thanks, Phil. Uh, Tyler Emerson is the. Uh, let me let me make sure I get your title right. You're the executive director of the Singularity Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And also on the line with us this evening, we have uh, an old favorite. Uh, not old. Uh, we have a. <laughs> I'm already in trouble here. We have a regular uh, participant on Fast Forward Radio, PJ Manny. PJ, how are you? I'm fine, gentlemen. How are you? All doing good, I guess, right, Phil? <laughs> well, Phil's digging himself a bigger hole now, but that's okay. <laughs> so tonight is going to be a very special edition of Fast Forward Radio. We're foregoing the usual format. We're not going to let Stephen talk about sports at all. Um, here, although, we, I don't know, we might drift into sports just because we're in this uh, final week leading up to the Super Bowl, but, uh, well, but that's not the plan. plan. So there's nothing to talk about. <laughs> I'm sorry, what what was that, Tyler? Uh, the Packers lost, so I don't think there's anything to talk about. Hey, I'm with What's Tyler. To discuss? Mm. <laughs> no, well, I, I, we, we could get into predictions as to whether the Patriots are going to take it all the way or whether somehow uh, the Giants are going to find find a way to uh, uh, to, 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 to spoil that record. It, it, I guess it's all about whether the, the name Manning is magic enough, even for Eli. But... Uh, <laughs> Well, I, but, I saw the, the Onion was reporting that they spoke to the Giants and that they said they were looking forward to having a chance to almost beat the Patriots once again. Uh, so. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling that's probably what will happen, but uh, uh, we, we, we like to predict the future here, uh, not, not important stuff like the outcome of the Super Bowl. So. <laughs> We'll 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 uh, we'll shelve that for now. But uh, as I was saying, a very very special very special edition of the show. We're we're, we're um, foregoing the normal format, and tonight we're going to have kind of an open roundtable discussion amongst the four of us, and we're going to be delving into the topic of transhumanism just a little just a little bit. We have uh, several of us are members of the uh, World Transhumanist Association, and in, in addition to uh, Tyler being associated with Singularity Institute and I think um, Tyler, PJ, and myself, we're all part of uh, the uh, Foresight Nanotech. Is that right? We're, yes. Are, yeah, yes. Yeah. Tyler, I remember seeing you at the event. I didn't know if you were really a member, if you just crashed, or, you know, what your deal was there. <laughs> <laughs> yep, paid member. <laughs> okay, okay, in full standing, paid up. That, that's paid that's up. what, you know, the important thing we're trying to... Uh, got to stay on Christine Peterson's good list. 
That's right. Good deal. That, that's very important. Well, you know what? You've got to stay on top of these folks because um, I, I have a constant uh, – I won't call it an argument – a constant discussion with Foresight Nanotech as to whether the payment I've made was for the previous year or for the year that I'm in. Mm. Somehow I just, like joined at the wrong time of year when I first joined, and so every time I write him a check and, and then I get this thing, well, I guess you're not in anymore. And I'm like, well, no, I just sent you a check. But <laughs> all, all that aside, there couldn't be a more wonderful bunch of folks than uh, Foresight yeah. Nanotech, unless it's one of these other groups that we're talking about. Plus, uh, we were just saying before the show started, Lifeboat Foundation, which uh, several of us are affiliated with. And I don't know, Tyler, do you have any role with Lifeboat? Uh, I don't not ha- I don't have a formal role. I've been contacted by a number of guys. I know a number of the people involved. You know, certainly value the intent and focus of that organization around existential risk, which is, you know, obviously not a formal area of academic study right now. Where we need to have a, a community built around, and clearly that's also a focus of the Oxford Futures Meta Institute with Nick Bostrom, who's one of the individuals who helped to really begin defining that field. So I certainly value what they're working to do. Right. Well, I don't know if you realize this, but PJ, of course, is a science advisor to the Lifeboat Foundation. And why? I have no idea. Why would I be a scientific advisor? We, we thought we'd spend the last. Yeah. yeah. We thought we'd spend the second half of the show with PJ just kind of stepping us through string theory. <laughs> now, now. Kind of an introduction, if if, if we could. But and, and as I was saying, Stephen and I are, are both in discussions about doing some blogging for Lifeboat. So we're we're all kind of highly credentialed futurists in uh, in very, various aspects of uh, various organizations. So what we're what we're going to be doing this evening is we're going to we're going to ask a few questions and uh, in, in a very unstructured way, just have kind of a dialogue or a no a conversation since there's several of us. Uh, talking about transhumanism and, and, and talking about what that means and where that can go, and maybe touching a little bit on what these different organizations uh, might might have to have to say about that. But let's start out with the most basic question of all, which is what what is a transhumanist? What what does that mean? And Tyler, if if I could, I'm going to give that sure. one to you initially. Yeah, absolutely. So, fortunately, there's a lot of nonsense around this idea of transhumanism and what transhumanists stand for. Uh, it's something that's almost odd answering because it's so basic and simple uh, when you really think about it. A transhumanist is, for example, someone who says there are no special cases to the rule of thumb that we should have the choice to live one more day. Whether you apply that rule of thumb to 25 days, 360 days, 5 years, 15 years, 100 years, 500 years, 5,000 years, there are no special cases to that simple a basic rule that if you asked, um, if you did a USA Today, went out and did a poll of a thousand people, I think that as long as you avoid labels and avoid a lot of nonsense on that basic issue, you would have uh, common agreements almost across the board. So transhumanists are someone who really holds, in my opinion, some very basic views um, about life. And, uh, part of the reason why I'm involved in this organization, uh, the World Transhumanist Association, and others. It's because I came to this with a background in critical thinking, and I had done a lot of studying of Mahayana and Zen Buddhism. So I've been really impacted by, like a lot of other people throughout history, uh, the idea, a very simple idea of wanting to live your life in a way that you try to alleviate suffering as much as possible. Whenever I came to transhumanism uh, through the writings of people like Ray Kurzweil 
Eric Drexler, on up to Nick Bostrom, Max Moore, and others. I came to it with the background of really trying to find what I wanted to do with my life to, at least to the best of my judgment, have as much leverage as I could. And transhumanism to me represented um, a combination of working toward that goal, alleviate suffering, with as much leverage as you can, given the, the, the abilities that we're going, the, the possibilities that science and technology are going to be opening up for us in the coming decades, you know, through things like nanotechnology and so on. So that's partially, I mean, that's one of the core reasons why I'm involved with this, and hopefully that's a decent answer. That, that's a great start, I think, and I, I like I like the example, and and I think the the idea that um, no one would argue with denying anyone an extra day of life, right? At, right. at any point is 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 just a as, as straightforward an introduction into the whole idea as you could possibly find. But then I would ask, well, how would we distinguish transhumanism from, say, proponents of life extension, which, of course, is a part of it, and, and there must be some overlap. But, but what else does it entail in addition, in addition to, to that idea? Right. PJ, do you want to take that one, or should I? Uh, sure. Um, for me, it has to do with the whole point of humans being technological creatures. We have for millennia really been able to put the tools of to create tools and use those tools to improve our ability to function in the world it's what we do and right. to see the development of humanity I, I and I, I've said this often I find the concept of being a transhumanist you know it's almost a label we don't need everyone is a transhumanist yeah. <laughs> Humanity is transhuman already. We have already evolved. We, we are evolving through um, our interaction with the environment. We're involved, we've evolving. We know already how much the genome has been changing just in the past 10,000 years based on uh, genetic studies on movements of, of, uh, of humans around the world, etc. Um, that's just on the natural level. What we've now realized is that you know we're changing not just the world but ourselves through these tools, and we're getting ever increasingly powerful tools, be it use of genetics, again, ideas of nanotechnology, etc., um, robotics. So the point is, we now are becoming extremely conscious. We have these tools. We were very unconscious of the fact we had these tools for centuries. Right. But now we become so conscious we have these tools because the changes that we'll be able to manifest will be very great in a very short amount of time. That's why the word I think has gotten currency because people who realize that this is a reality are going, "Oh my gosh, you know, we're we're becoming transhuman." Well, no, we've always been transhuman. We've always been transitioning through the species for a million years. And that's why certainly I look at transhumanism as something as something simply you have to deal with it. It's here. Right. It's it's now. We have big questions coming up in our society that need to be grappled with, and people have to understand that everyone has to answer the question. This is not something that I think you can get from you know opinions from on high. Well, we know what's best for you all. I think people have to come to the idea that there are big changes pot potentially for each and every one of them, and they need to make choices. And to, the only way you can make a choice is to have information. 
so in a sense, we're all, we're all transhumans, but a transhumanist is a, a transhuman who's paying attention to the process. Is that, exactly. Is that you know, if, if, if I look at my mother with her, her, her artificial corneas and, uh, and her and heart valve, or I look at my uh, stepfather-in-law who has a pacemaker, they're already cyborgs. It's yep. kind of like, you know, what, the whole idea that, that we're like, oh, my God, cyborgs. Well, they're all around us. They're our parents. <laughs> they're us. Well, you know, pushing the boundaries is the most human thing we do, isn't it? It's I mean, exactly what we do. You know, what, what differentiates us between us and other animals? Uh, well, I guess probably the biggest thing is that we know that we're going to, you know, we know mortality. We understand what that means, and we're not happy about it. And uh, being a transhumanist is the ultimate expression of that, I think. Uh, you know, we're going to push the boundaries as far as we can push them. It's also being conscious that the, bound, the ability to change the boundary changes as well. So it's not just the idea that, you know, 100 years ago, the idea of life extension, well, I mean, what could you have done back then? You could have eaten and exercised properly. <laughs> That's probably all you could do. And back 100 then, years ago, you didn't even know what that was, though, right? Well, but you, in, you would have gotten all kinds of unbelievably wonky advice. Well, absolutely, and, and it's fascinating, but you know, some of the advice, I mean, you, you look back 2,000 years ago, and some of the advice is like, wow, you nailed it. <laughs> right. You know, some of the advice was, was right on the money. Um, just just don't bleed you. You know, right, leave bleeding alone. Leases. But but now there there's so many opportunities to extend life through artificial means right. that are not just lifestyle choices that we, these are decisions we're literally making daily mm-hmm. so Absolutely. why is it that you know for me the the again the the, the label it's a divisive it, it creates a divisiveness among yeah. people yeah because I think- we're already dealing with it. Everyone is already dealing with it. Yeah, I, I kind of like the term, though. I, I, to take the other side, PJ. I, okay. And, and the reason, um, I, you know, I like it in part because it it, ta- it, it incorporates humanism. Mm-hmm. I, you know, there's not. I, I can't imagine a transhumanist who's not a humanist first. That's very true. And uh, in the fact that the, that was used in, you know, okay, now we're humanists. You know, we believe in, in fundamental freedoms of the human being, and that should be that should be paramount to government and everything else. We're, we believe in, in the rights of individuals, and now, because we believe in these rights of individuals, we believe that individuals should have the rights to pursue a biological destiny. You know, push it as far as it can be pushed with the technology we have at hand, and uh, and and so we need something else. Let's and let's call it. Transhumanism. It, it works better than superhumanism, I guess. <laughs> yeah, for sure. One of the key points is through informed choices. And another key point, in my opinion, is the idea of pushing boundaries is not something that sits well with a lot of people. And I think something that gets lost in translation is the notion that transhumanists stand for you must push boundaries, as if Amish could not continue, we could not continue to have the Amish or the equivalent of the Amish in 10, 20, 30 years, however long. It's simply the choice. Oh, oh the, the suggestion that everybody has to push the boundary. That oh, yeah. Somehow the, every, everybody has to go yeah. to the, the next Well, the, 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 which kind of points back to, you know, you're a humanist first. If you're a transhumanist, you don't think that everybody should have to do these things because you're a humanist first. Right. Meaning that if people have individual freedom to be Amish or do whatever, they, you know, live the way they want to live. 
Well, I, I, you know, I, I completely agree with you, Stephen, on, on the notion that – and I like the word transhumanist, too, because I, what I would counter, PJ, with, with the notion that um, it's, it's a divisive term, it's like, well, it's a, you need a definitional term. In, in order to if uh, in order to encourage people to pay attention, if you're going to say, well, there are trans, we're all transhumans, but some of us are paying attention to it. Um, we have to call them something. Or, Fair or enough. Do, or do you, Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or else we, you know, it, it would be hard to. Uh, it's hard to uh, just say, hey, you. Yeah, you know, Phil <laughs> Bowermaster fan club would be another, you know, alternative. <laughs> well, we'd all join that, that Phil. Person. You know, no problem. Well, exactly. <laughs> There's a lot of overlap because not everybody in that's a transhumanist. But um. <laughs> sort, of one, sort of one in relation to this this issue of whether we need the term or not. You know, I I don't know. I, I think we need we probably do need some kind of term that represents certain core values, uh, views, messages, and so on. I mean, I I think of it along the lines of a brand of you know what are the core aspects of the brand of Apple. What do they stand for, and so on, at least what they try to uh, to put forward. Now, what I've been talking with the World Transhumanist Association about the directors is the idea of attempting to define the one core message that represents transhumanism. If you had to remove everything else, what would you be left with? And focusing your efforts around that one core message. I'm not sure what that is yet, but. I know there's been a number of people who think that it's really not possible to do that. But as far as if you're attempting to, for example, as the WTA is, to grow, um, to exponentially, exponentially scale a movement of people from a wide variety of walks of life who share a common vision and to inspire those people to work toward a common effort, you need to have common messages underlying that that all of them can agree with. And, you know, I certainly think that I mean, there's a clear potential for transhumanism and organizations that are focusing on it to represent that. We're just not doing a good job with it at all right now, is the reality, I think. So that's well, if, one of my views. <laughs> if, we, if we were to try to put uh, some, some uh, you know, take, take a shot or two at, at what that central message would be, how far off is, uh, do, you, do you think Stephen is in his notion of um, – well, say it again, Stephen. I, I thought you 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 you, you kind of laid it out there pretty well just a moment ago. Uh, you, you, you're talking about how if uh, you know the, you have to be a humanist first to be a transhumanist, or the well, just the idea of or the um, humans uh, the, the humans push boundaries that kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I believe that the most human thing we do is push boundaries, and 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 the, and the reason we do it is because we understand that you know. Um, we understand mortality. We don't like it, and so we're going to do everything we can do about it. And uh, I believe that that's that's uh, that's that's in a nutshell there. But you know, there's also other aspects. I mean, we'd like to be smarter. We'd like to be stronger. And uh, I think that uh, those those issues are also part of transhumanism. I think, right, Tyler? And and in fact, I would I would say that uh, it, it's not just our mortality. Yeah. But it's it's all of the limitations all limitations. That, yeah. That that have. Uh, or, or maybe not all, but uh, a certain very annoying number of our limitations that have kind of held us back over the years, the ones that we, that we keep coming up against. And, and even to take it back to your definition, we're aware of our mortality, but, but we're also aware of what it is. You know, I don't think my dogs have that idea in their head. You know, they, 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 don't, they don't worry that there might be some cheese unless I say the word cheese and then they're going to, like, you know, throw a little fit or something. But, but humans, 
have this imagination and have this have this notion that there could be more than than we're currently experiencing and that and that what we're currently experiencing has has limits around it mortality is the big one right i mean cuz then mm-hmm. everything's everything's done but but you start talking about just our ability to do things our ability to think um our our, our ability to interact with each other all all of those things uh, we, we can take them to a certain point, and then we find that that they're limited, and yet we can imagine them uh, transcending that. Right. Yeah, I think those are valuable points. So maybe, yeah, I, I can definitely see how it would be difficult to try to find one core message. Maybe it could be a set of the basic messages, or you, you have to have messages shaped for particular audiences. I mean, for example, one of the things that I just struggle with in my in working with um, various organizations that are labeled transhumanism, either indirectly or directly, is that you know, I tend to try to focus on very basic things, very basic uh, values that guide what I'm trying to do in life. Um, one, for example, is, you know, I'm wanting to have as much leverage as I can, work with uh, as many remarkable people as I can uh, to collaborate on trying to do as much as possible at tackling the greatest challenges that we have. And, I mean, the state of civilization that we're in right now is not acceptable whatsoever. I mean, the the scale magnitude of problems that still exist in the world is uh, difficult to really get your your head around. I I don't think that many of us think about it too much. I mean, whether it's some of the near-term problems that could be solved with technological solutions, if can be solved with technological solutions, if we were able to restructure um, social rules in a way that allowed the solutions to get in the hands of the people who need it would be, for example, uh, the 5 million children who are dying every year approximately from lack of access to safe, clean, drinkable water, or on up to 1 billion people who have a mental or physical illness, or uh, 40 million of us with HIV-AIDS, or the 2 billion, or sorry, the uh, 4 billion who live on uh, $3 a day uh, or less a day. These are, and, you know, the biggest one, obviously, is the one that most people don't even think about. Two deaths every second, 6,000 every hour, 55 million every year. I mean, it's unbelievable. So, you know, I would like to build a global interconnected community of people who are focused on a long-term effort to make progress on these problems. And I think that transhumanism can represent that, but it has to do it in a way that is not divisive, that is not unclear, that does not, you know, that brings people together, that makes, a, that has a very clear vision of how all of this can work toward these very common basic goals. So that's kind of part of the background that I bring to this. Well, yeah, Tyler, that, that's a, it's, uh, it's a, a laudable goal, but I think also it's, it's kind of, it's kind of tough that you, you know, you know, you have. These ideas that you want to people to join you in, but any time you get two or three people in a room, they all have different ideas of what transhumanism is. I guess yeah. the thing to do, I guess, is uh, to, you know say, well, you know, we're not going to agree on all the minutia, right. but but here's the things we can agree on, and uh, and if you know, and I, I think that uh, like you know, the, as broadly defined, uh, transhumanism, you, you as PJ has suggested it, it brings in just about everybody, mm-hmm. and so yeah. Well, these are certainly universal concerns, aren't they? I mean, yeah. when we talk about um, 
that that list, Tyler, that you just provided of uh, mm-hmm. problems that that plague the human condition. These these are these are problems that I, I think almost anyone would respond to and say, "Yeah, we really need to do something about these things." Yeah. And um, well, with death being kind of the exception, that's the one where if if you yeah. say, if you if you say to people, "Well, shouldn't we do something about that?" Generally. Um, we, we've talked about this on the program before. We talked about this with Aubrey. Um, then, then there's 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 a whole line of uh, kind of defensive reactions around why that one is one you wouldn't address. Although in in specific cases, and I, I thought that was a great example you gave at the beginning of the show, Tyler. Mm-hmm. In specific cases, nobody wants any individual to die. Right. No one. No. No one. You know. No one would ever say, "Yeah, people need to die." So you know, this guy right here is just <laughs> got to go. Right. So, yeah. No, it's the so idea it, of millions not dying that freak people out. That's right. that's the, the, the what becomes one of the issues. Yeah. And 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 uh, and I think the, the reason people have a problem with that is the whole well, you know, what about new kids and things like that. I mean, obviously a society would have to change. And um, you know. Yeah, I think I think Aubrey does a good job with this in making yeah. the case that look, it's not for you and I to decide these issues. Right. That's right. And it's not for us to tell people right now that this rule of thumb, you should have the choice to live one more day, is not going to apply because we have a lot of uncertain concerns or gut reactions to dislike to these notions. I mean, yeah, I think that, that I would certainly hope that that would be something that most people could accept. Of course, the Aubrey we've mentioned a couple of times is Aubrey de Grey. Um, yeah. For the benefit of our listeners. Good, good call. We've interviewed him. Uh, what was that, Stephen? About a year and a half ago, we had him on the program, and uh, he was actually one of the first ever speculist interviews that we did. So, Aubrey's uh, got kind of a, we, we, a kind of a long-term relationship we have uh, talking with him on on the subject of life extension. Um, now, that that leads me to a, uh, a a slightly different idea, which is if 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 we go back to the problems that um, that that you named, Tyler. Yeah. Um, it, it seems to me that um, one of the questions that someone being introduced to the notion of uh, transhumanism the first time might respond with is, "Well, but that's what like uh, the politicians are trying to do, or that you know that's what the the you know Catholic Church is trying to address, or or, or that's what you know in, any number of NGOs or yeah, nonprofits are, are are trying to fix those things. So what's what's the difference between uh, you, you folks who say you're aware of this process of human evolution versus uh, versus th- those kinds of organizations who, who also claim to have a lot of the same ends in common? Right. Yeah. One of the, the core uh, core ways to differentiate transhumanist or transhumanist organization as far as their focus relative to a lot of other groups, is that they are aware and um, act accordingly uh, according to how um, accelerating technological change is occurring in a number of areas. If you look at, now I'm not saying that we can make precise predictions about when technologies may or may not be developed, but if you look at the data um, over different time frames and different areas of science and technology, you can see clear trends of acceleration in a number of areas. And if you look at um, a lot of different variables right now, I think there are more reasons to think that it's likely the accelerating rate of innovation will continue in a number of areas, biotechnology, information technology, AI, robotics, nanotech, a number of areas. And that means there are 
going to be an expansion of the opportunity and the risk uh, that we'll have from these technologies to either um, advance or mitigate, uh, sorry, advance or hinder humanity. And transhumanists are often people who are focused on these problems because very few people are aware of these issues in the world right now. And they're trying, again, and one of the common things that I've heard from most of the people that I work with, I've interacted with, is that they're trying to have as much impact as they can based on the best of their judgment. And they feel that you know, working to develop uh, these technologies or working to mitigate the risk is one of the best ways in the long run that they can go about you know, trying to advance humanity. So that's the core part of it. I think it really is that, that recognition that the changes are happening at a rate at which it's very difficult for traditional institutions to not just acknowledge but respond. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. For instance, I think it was last year, uh, Congress came out with a paper on nanotechnology, and I remember reading it. And first, first of all, it was filled with inaccuracies, which I was stunned by. But <laughs> second of all, they were addressing things that people who have been thinking about this stuff have been thinking about for 10 to 20 years. Yes. as though this was brand new information. And that's a perfect example. To of, them it was, I bet. To them it was brand new information. <laughs> They're just waking up to what was but what people have been thinking exactly about for 20 years. But that's exactly the point that, that he's making, which is um, because of this accelerating change, because we're, we understand where these things are going and we're aware of where they are, even right now at this very moment, it's extraordinary how the public at large no less the institutions who are supposed to be protecting the public welfare have any concept. Right. And, well, and that's, I think communication is a big part of, of the, the transhumanist um, issue. Yeah. Getting, getting this across to lay people who may not have had any opportunity to hear it before as yeah. to why this is going to happen. And, uh, and if, if, if parts of the public start talking about it, then maybe – the uh, ruling elites will start to pay attention. Well, I'm not sure that we can get them to pay attention first, right? They are reactive. That's the thing you always have to remember about ruling mm-hmm. elites. Uh, you know, government is reactive. It, it is never proactive. Yeah. Um, and react and, and the reactive uh, button only gets pushed at a point of critical mass of reaction. So, well, necessarily, that's just government. I think that's built into our cognitive biases. Oh, absolutely. That's one profound cognitive bias that we all share. Yeah. Absolutely. So. So to uh, to even get that acknowledgement, there has to be a certain number of people in the world who get it and can communicate their concerns to whatever bodies they're trying to talk to. Well, it seems we we certainly have a ways to go because I I look at, you know, this is an election year, and we've got at this point what, uh, very generously speaking, six still viable candidates in, probably more like four, but somewhere in there, four to six candidates Mm-hmm. For, for Office of President of the United States, all of whom talking about the need, the urgent need for change, the, the need to bring about deep changes, and all of them talking in terms of doing stuff that's been done, you know, with whatever level of success any number of times before. Nobody actually talking about doing anything really significantly new. Right. Yeah. <laughs> relative to what? Relative to our frame of reference. To our frame of reference, absolutely. I mean, yeah. we were we were thrilled, Stephen, a couple of weeks ago when it looked like uh, Robert Zubrin's uh, ideas around um, 
flex-fuel vehicles were, were maybe seeping their way into the McCain campaign a little bit. You know, that somebody, you know, some of this kind of new... Yeah, somebody somewhere is paying attention. To, well. to, to some of this stuff, but uh, but that was a you know there's a very thin read uh, uh, amongst uh, amongst all the ideas that are touted and 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 the approaches that are taken and and from our frame of reference it looks like man you know just would like to sit down and talk with these folks and say do you, you know right. do you have an idea if you want to bring about change how much change it's actually possible that that is happening that that could be leveraged right. right. Well, the thing I'm, the other thing I'm hearing from Tyler is that the change is robust and doesn't need those people. It's going to happen, you know, without the elites. It's, it, um, you know, it's not just one thing that's coming about. It's not just like computers that are becoming more powerful. It's all it's 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 across the board, and um, and so it, it'd be nice if we had some folks up in Washington and. You know, uh, leaders throughout the world who understood these issues a little better, um, and, mm-hmm. and maybe maybe it will happen. And but it's um, it, it seems like uh, you know it's 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 kind of set it's kind of set to happen, and we kind of it it be and of course the more people understand the better. But um, these these changes are occurring without these folks, you know, mm-hmm. being involved. In re- in relation to that, uh, Stephen, so a couple of things come to mind uh, as far as target audiences. So the core, probably the core, the main audience that I'm particularly interested in collaborating with a lot of people on, uh, to focus on is young people, university campuses. You know, I think that, take the case of the study of safe advanced AI, or what Eliezer, my coworker, calls friendly AI. Right. If we had millions of dollars to go out and hire extremely intelligent researchers, who had the multidisciplinary knowledge to have a shot at tackling some of the problems uh, that we have identified around the study of friendly AI, we would have a very hard time finding sufficiently qualified people. From our again, from our frame of reference, how we would define that. Yeah. There are there are very very few uh, young people right now, in my in my opinion, who are aware of the scope of these issues, who are taking them seriously, and you know who are working toward devoting their careers in these directions. So that has to change, and that's something that you can do through uh, working with remarkable people in, in communications, marketing, uh, a broad range of areas, and something that transhumanism or th- these kind of organizations have not done very well, have not done a good job with. So that's one thing. Another is yeah. if you look at the uh, – TED is one of my favorite conferences, favorite examples, uh, TED that Chris Anderson runs. It's coming up in March. Or look at the Clemson Global Initiative. So in the case of TED, you know, a community that they have developed over what will be 25 years next year, bring leaders together from a wide variety of areas in technology, entertainment, and design. And this community that they built can have a lot of influence, a lot more influence than almost any other community that a person might try to create of an equal number of people. Uh, they have the TED Prize that they focus, where they give a wish to, say, Bono in 2005 to create a campaign to work towards um, getting people around the world to sign a pledge uh, to have U.S. government and other governments increase the percentage of GDP that they devote to sustainable development to foreign aid. Mm-hmm. Um, that the TED community has the resources, influence to help implement that TED wish, and they've done that now for at least three years that I know of. 
there is not an equivalent community in the world right now that is focused on what we might just call transhumanist subjects, uh, longer-term science and technology. So I think if we were able to, again, getting back to global connected community of one, um, young people, and two, leaders in different areas, to have that focus on an annual basis, um, it would help to start changing things. I, I think we could, on a year, yearly basis, we could start seeing more influence as time goes on. But it's just not happening yet. No one's done it. So th those are just a couple of thoughts that come to mind. I wonder if hitting kids at the university level is almost too late. I wonder if we ought to be going out and talking to eighth graders about this kind of stuff. You know what I mean? It's like once once they're in college, they're uh, they're already majoring in something, right? If we if we could uh, if we could if we get them a little younger and 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 um, talk to them not only about what all these issues are, you know, at a level that would be appropriate to. To, to kids, which I, which I think you have to give them credit, they they can uh, they can take in a lot more than uh, than adults often think. But but also, you know, what kinds of things they might want to be focusing on as they as their education unfolds in in order to in in order to be real players in in order to have a role to play in in these kinds of possibilities as they unfold. Mm -hmm. I think there actually are. I'm try in fact, I'm I'm on my computer trying to find it. Um, but I believe there are, in fact, groups that um, deal with kids talking about futurist issues. And I'm trying to find it as... Uh, no, one thing that comes to mind is Dean Kamen's first. The that's robotic true, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Uh, of course, uh, and, and Bill, Bill and I have made the, made the decision early, early on with the fast-forward radio to make it family-friendly. You know, I have to yeah. I have to beep out. You know, uh, Phil's incessant. You know, cursing. But uh, yeah, that's why we have Stephen on the switch. And <laughs> luckily, luckily, he and I both just naturally talk at about a fifth grade level, so that helps quite a bit. <laughs> that helps, yeah. Reach, reach out to kids. But, but I'm sorry, uh, Tyler. You were mentioning a particular program that's aimed at kids. Yeah, Dean Kamen's first. I'm forgetting offhand what that stands for, but uh, an acronym that focuses on uh, kids. Let's see, the age range is certainly probably uh, 10 to 15, 16. I'm not sure exactly. But, yeah, it's a big robotics competition uh, that Dean Kamen and his collaborators host every year. Uh, it's, it's quite remarkable what they do to um, show kids, show young people that you can get passionate about science and technology. And a lot of the, you know, the video, uh, the, what they get from video games, can be translated into doing science technology, that same sense of inspiration, hope, and passion and to orient their lives around. So it, it's one of the more remarkable uh, programs that I know of right now. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, by the way, it stands for for Inspiration and Recognition of Science and Technology. Yeah, perfect. Uh, it's, it, it, is, it is fun. In fact, um, we know some people who are coaches. My son's actually looking forward to joining the program himself. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's a marvelous exposure for these kids to understand that technology is simply problem solving with your hands. Right. You know, it's coming up with how do I make this do that? Um, and it's just a, a wonderful opportunity for these kids to get in and have fun and learn stuff in a very supportive environment and make them understand that technology is not something that other people do. 
because that's one of the problems growing right. up now in this society of such easy and available, disposable technology. It's something other people make and other people right. think of. Mm-hmm. So these kids have to learn how to do it themselves, uh, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. That's great. PJ, if you have a link on that, could you send it to us? We'll make sure that gets into the uh, show notes we'd like to okay. direct uh, readers of the Speculus to more information on FIRST. Sounds like a wonderful program. So let's shift gears just a smidge and talk about um, if we're going to address these kinds of problems, if, if we're, if, if, uh, we're, we're going to try to take on some of these challenges that, that, that Tyler mentioned, um, it, do we need to change? Do people need to change? Um, or is the fact that humanity changing into something else is, is, a, is a benefit and, and, and something to be sought in and of itself? Or, or could we even address the problems that, that Tyler mentioned without us, say, becoming smarter first? And, Stephen, I'm going to throw that one at you first because you, you, you haven't gotten to gnaw on a question first yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the question is, I thought um, do, that... Do we need to change? Do we need to become smarter in order to address those problems? Or is becoming smarter uh, something that we might pursue as an end unto itself rather than something that needs to happen to, to, to bring about these kinds of changes? I think that we already are smarter in the way that we work, and that not not necessarily. You know, if if you if you put me on a desert island, I wouldn't be smarter today than if you put me on a desert island. You know, 15 years ago, except for you know, anyway, you know what I'm saying. I, you know, the the, the amount of brain power I would bring to that situation would not, has not changed, but the way that we work and the way that we're able to connect with one another and with you know uh, almost unlimited amount of knowledge with the Internet and everything else, allows us to, in some ways, we're already beginning to be smarter in that way. Does that make sense? And so, well, one of the things I've heard you say numerous times is that you claim Google is part of your memory. Right? That's right. And <laughs> because, I mean, literally, if, if I'm, if I'm thinking, thinking about things, uh, you know, and, and, and trying to get my thoughts together, maybe to write a post for the speculist or, or, or whatever, or just just for my own edification, want to know something? I you know I, almost reflexively, I'm googling. You know, I'm 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 searching. I'm 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 learning that way. And um, you know, if if you ever, uh, I think PJ once mentioned that you know uh, she had just she was in the process of moving or something, and she was without internet for like a week or so. Six it's, weeks. It, six, six weeks. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's uh, it's it's a major handicap. I would rather do without just about any utility in my house, with the exception of maybe water, than than the internet. And it's and it's not. It, it's it, I no longer uh, think of it as a luxury. I, it, it's something mm. I need. That's interesting. I've never tried that experiment experiment personally to see if I could you know last say a month without the internet. That would be interesting. It was horrendous. Uh, and especially what I found fascinating, you know, I joke that it's a lobe of my brain um, because I could not work without it. What I discovered was when I write, and granted, you know, I write techno thrillers, so I need a lot of access to information. But when I write, I cannot write without the internet. I cannot write without double-checking or going, oh, wait a second. Oh, if I only knew that little bit more about that thing, that would be perfect. In some ways, all writing is collaborative when, when you're hooked up like that, isn't it? 
Well, and and you know, we're just talking about a knowledge base. All all writing is is accumulative in that sense. You're you're always pulling from something that has come before you, right. uh, and adding to it. Right, and that was now the case for any writer. Mind, right? So yeah, that, it was the case for you know, writers. You know, Mark Twain was you know he he didn't sit down and write Huck Finn without having read some books before that, but. The the fact that you know everything's so immediate and we're and 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 uh, we're learning so much more all the time and and we have access in real time to things that are going on that it makes it, it to me I, and I don't know that I asked answered your original question though Phil the, the, the original question was should we pursue um, you know being smarter before we can. Uh, pursue these uh, I think things. you did answer it, Stephen, because your answer was we're getting smarter anyway. Yeah. So my my question is kind of irrelevant. It doesn't matter if we're uh, doing it as a means to an end or as an end unto itself. Um, it's happening. It, it's happening. Okay. Yeah. So. I guess you know now you know I haven't been literally wired up to something, and I don't have nanobots in my brain yet. But <laughs> but you know the day will come. Well, I can I'll tell you, it. last Sunday morning, my Comcast internet line went out. And, I mean, it was, like, seriously out. I called them, and they were like, we got to send a guy. And I was going on uh, leaving Sunday evening for a business trip, and I was gone all day Monday. So, um, for one thing, one thing that was interesting about that was I, I – I, I despise airports more than almost just about anything, but I couldn't wait to get to the airport because they had Wi-Fi, okay, leaving on this business trip. Because, like, you know, I, I went, like, almost two or three hours in my home without Internet. It was unbelievably painful. And when I got back, I was just that whole day waiting for the, you know, <laughs> 3 to 4 o'clock window when the Comcast guy was supposed to come. You know, I'm just drumming my fingers. I'm like, what is a person supposed to do in their house if, you know, if there's no Internet? I guess people watch TV before, but, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. So, so, but, but that leads me to think then. Okay, so it is happening already, but it, it almost seems like more of a crutch. So now I'm going to throw the question to PJ this time. PJ, are we are we getting smarter, or do we need to get smarter, or is getting smarter um, uh, something that we could pursue but we don't have to? Oh, now you get more options than Stephen did. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Tyler, by the time this gets to you, it'll be like nine choices. <laughs> I, have, I have two very simple answers to that. Uh, well, I'm going to throw it to Tyler then. Go for it. <laughs> no, two, two very – I try to simplify things as much as possible. Uh, with all right. respect, I, I think it's a misplaced question in that it, uh, the assumption is that we have a choice. Um, I don't think, uh, based on a lot of um, argumentation, generalizations of where we are, in science and technology, that we really will have a choice. Now, so um, it, it's not as if it's something that can be avoided in the long run, even if we wanted to. Um, th there's a lot of nuance to that argument, and I can see how uh, a lot of people may dismiss it out of hand. But, but anyway, um, certainly we've um, written a lot about that at the Singularity Institute. But as far as whether it's a means unto itself, I certainly think so. Uh, you know, if you look at the past 10,000 years of Homo sapiens sapiens development, the change that we've experienced from agriculture to the World Wide Web has come about without any fundamental change in the underlying cognitive ability uh, that we've had, the underlying human cognition, uh, because there has not been any substantial change in our brain architecture. If you can have that immense amount of change in 10,000 years without any fundamental change in the underlying uh, process that allowed for it, then what might happen if you expand beyond the boundaries of cognition as we have known it um, within our species, what might happen then? So with that in mind, intelligence 
I do think is a means unto itself. It's a means of improving our ability to solve problems um, across the board. Obviously, we don't have any kind of process and technology that allows us to have a general ability, um, the ability to generally improve our problem-solving ability. Um, we don't have that yet, but we have hundreds of examples of, for example, uh, what, what's called narrow AI systems, where you know, chess playing, algorithm creation, uh, flight and vehicle navigation that are doing things at a human similar or in some instance, uh, instances a human surpassing level. So what might it look like if we could generally improve our problem-solving ability? So those are a couple of ways that I would answer that question. Okay. Although I, 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 although I would ahead. say, if I could just jump in, um, first of all, there may in fact be an improvement in our cognition if you believe in the Flynn effect, and that's really only measured over the last 100 years. And remind us about the Flynn effect. The Flynn effect, the idea is that our IQ uh, has risen across the board, around the world, in almost every culture, um, has consistently risen over the last century. And if that's true, and I'm the last person to say I know, uh, I'm an expert in IQ studies, um, but if that's true, I think in part of it is actually a recognition that the world is getting more complex and we have to apply more intellect towards dealing with it. I like that there's a book that attempts to explain the Flynn effect that I, I think is it's, it's very interesting. It's, it's called Everything Bad is Good for You. <laughs> And it, it, it's a very interesting book. It, it, it basically is saying, you know, these video games that we are, you know, you're, you're spending too much time on this video game, uh, Timothy. I, I, you know, lecture him about that. Well, you know, these video games are not Pac-Man anymore. You know, yeah. these things uh, it take it take a lot of uh, mental effort, and they're very complex. And and then even things like television. I mean, compare the plot of something like Lost with anything that was uh, playing in the 1970s on television. Um, you know, you, you have to uh, you know keep up with like twenty different characters and the interactions and what's going on. And, and you know, it just and the world at large is so much more complex. So um, I guess maybe you have to be more engaged, and maybe that is perhaps making us smarter. And that was really the idea behind that book. It's a great book. Recommend it. From my point of view, regardless of whether or not the Flynn effect actually does exist. Um, I see a generalized confusion in the world in how they deal with technology, with what how society has changed because of technology. I personally think we do have to get smarter. I, I've, uh, <laughs> I'll be castigated by many people for saying that, but I actually think we need to get smarter because soon our machines will outpace us. And I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing from a level of manipulation, a potential manipulation. Well, I want to say one reason I think we need to get smart, smarter, is because uh, we need to be able to defend ourselves against, uh, you know, some rogue genius who's um, perhaps uh, engineering a disease or something. Um, you know, we need, to, you know, the, the amount of intelligence it takes to end the world, I think, may be decreasing all the time, and so therefore we need to. We need to have some smart folks that are involved in defending against that sort of thing. I think that yeah. that may that may be a coming problem, and and I think it's some risk. That's one of the risks associated with that. You know, this that we'll see in the future. 
So I have to, while there's a chance, I have to mention this. Uh, one of my coworkers, Eliezer, in a tug-in-cheek, came up with the Moore's Law for Mad Scientists, and that you guys may have heard of this. Uh, yeah, we, we've referred yeah. to this on the show before, but yeah. please remind us what that is. I love this. <laughs> the amount of IQ that it takes to blow up the world drops by one point every 12 to 18 months. <laughs> that's the, I mean, and, and, and that's I think and it's, true. You know, it's funny, but it's true. Yeah. yeah. True. Well, it, it gets back to the heart of uh, certainly the argument that Bill Joy, for example, and many others made in his original April 2000 wide article, Why the Future Doesn't Need Us, that the kind, the GNR technologies, genetics, nano, AI, robotics that are being developed are more uh, based on whether they come about or more based on the technical knowledge that we have as opposed to the physical resources that we have. They're going to be much less based on physical resources. And, and that leads him to believe, uh, I think for sound reasons, that the scale of risk uh, will increase as the opportunity does as well. Um, but it's, it's very unclear uh, right now what kind of you know, solutions we'll be able to tackle that. I mean, it kind of gets into the debate of openness versus privacy, uh, openness and transparency, a lot of different things, but yeah, certainly it's one of those big issues that are not that's not being discussed, not being uh, devoted, um, it's not being thought about a lot by a lot of uh, extremely intelligent people yet. So, yeah, and that's Eliezer Yetkowski, is that right? Yeah, yeah, one of the researchers at SAI. Yeah. Okay, provides a lot of fodder for both the speculist and. Uh, Fast forward radio. Actually, we're going to have to have him on one of these one of these days. We've we've never gotten around to uh, getting him scheduled for the for the program. Um, so so let's talk about a couple of uh, a couple of the other items that, uh, that that I had on the list. Let's let's take it as a given that we are getting smarter, and I think uh, basically we all seem to be in agreement that we also need to get smarter too. So one doesn't necessarily. Uh, rule out the other. What about what about some of the other kinds of changes? Are are these um, are these things that that need to happen, or are these things that we just might choose to make happen? For example, um, expanding our capability uh, physically by uh, physically augmenting ourselves, or the the kinds of like radical transformations that you hear about that might occur within society. Now, are these things that 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 must happen in order to solve the problems that we want to solve, or are they just possibilities that we may choose to explore? And PJ, since you ducked the earlier question, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, golly. Um, I think they're going to happen regardless, whether we want them to or not. And I okay. think that really is the point. Um, we already are going through physical changes in terms of what things are possible. You know, I think about the um, the athletes that are going through be it the steroid issues, um, but you really that's just that's the tip of the iceberg. When you deal with the things that nobody talks about in the sports issues, like um, the elbow surgeries and the body armor, and the you know, and you start adding up all of the bits, just in baseball, for instance. This is a single sport where they are creating people who are not like you and me to play right. the sport. Um, and this is just for entertainment, because let's not forget, sport is simply entertainment. Um, these things are happening every day and will simply continue to. Nobody go, wakes up in the morning and says, I wonder how I'm going to change humanity today. They mm -hmm. get up and they have a job to create something, to create a technology to solve a problem. How the technology gets used 
depends on the situation, depends on the people involved. Um, so if it makes money. <laughs> if it makes money. That is the, that That's does the make thing. the world go round. Yeah. Um, it is all about money. Well, that's uh, one of the reasons why, why just, just to give a classic example of that right now that's going on, uh, based on my knowledge, Dean Kamen created the Sterling Engine water purification system that uh, he cannot get into the hands of the people who need it to help reduce the 5 million deaths of children taking place right now because they can't access clean, drinkable water because he doesn't have the right business model. And, mm. I mean, that, that's a classic example right now. Anyway, go ahead, PJ. Uh, that, that, that is a classic example, but... The irony is that as long as the business model exists, it's going to happen. Um, so for me, it's not whether we need to do it, whether uh, we can just speculate if it's going to happen. It's going to happen. We don't yeah. know exactly how it's going to happen, exactly when it's going to happen. We just know it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So the question is, like I'm sorry. Do we? Yeah, uh, yeah I was just going to say, do we embrace that? Do we engage with that? We, we, yeah, we have to engage with it. I think that that okay. uh, that is is it. Um, we can't just sit back and relax and join the show because who knows who the director of the show is? Uh, there may be people doing things that are not in our individual best interests or our collective best interests. Um, so, again, an awareness that these things are coming to pass and what it is we as society expect from these things. Uh, it's one thing to look at certain, body, let's say, uh, body enhancement technologies and say, well, you know, it's great for baseball players um, who I want to do super, superhuman things because that's really cool. Uh, and it's really great for people, let's say, who need prosthetics because they've lost limbs. But, hmm, gosh, you know, where do I draw the line? You know, would I, uh, we've got this Olympic runner right now, Oscar Pistorius, if I wanted to be a great runner, would I amputate my legs and wear blades like he does? I mean, he did, he, his amputation, of course, was from an accident as a child. Um, but he can run faster than other athletes. But he can run faster than other athletes. Mm-hmm. Quite well, a, <laughs> that, that, that is a fascinating challenge right well, here. I, I would think, you know, and I think part of transhumanism is coming to grips with the term that that's not for us to decide. It, the, the point is, it's not for us as, as individuals to decide about other individuals. Other individuals, exactly. It's, it's, a, it's, it's for us to decide, you know, I don't think I'll cut my feet off today. <laughs> <laughs> That's my personal choice, but it may not be, uh, you know, Phil's personal choice. But uh, It would pretty much be my choice. Okay, okay. We, well, we have a see. lot in common. Uh, yeah, we, now, before, we before we go any further, Stephen, um, let me just check with you. Are we uh, set up to go beyond the hour tonight? If we we sure are. We can, we can go 90 minutes tonight if... Uh, uh, and it seems like uh, we're not anywhere near winding this down. So let's. I, I don't feel that we're anywhere near winding down, but I would like to ask our our panel if they would feel comfortable staying on for a bit longer, if uh, if they have time and uh, bandwidth to uh, to keep talking with us for a while. Sure, sure. I'm fine. Great. Great. Okay. So let's get back to the notion of uh, uh, anyone on the call ready to cut their feet off. No, thank you. <laughs> no. Okay. no. Okay, okay. I, I didn't well, think so. Well, and, and I think, that, and, and there's, and, and I think that that's that's actually. Uh, you, I know you say it in jest, Phil, but I think that there's a there's a real good reason why not. I mean, you, certainly you might be able to run faster if, with blades than you can with your own feet, but I mean, you couldn't, you can't feel, you can't feel with artificial feet yet. They don't look like normal feet. They don't operate like normal feet when you walk. You know, uh, it's not as in, in so many ways. Um, 
I, I, I'll just bet that this athlete, what, what's his name, PJ? Oscar Pistorius. I bet you he would trade being the fastest guy on earth to have normal feet if he had had the choice. And um, an, Do you know, I don't know if anyone's ever asked him that question. That's, that's a good, very, that'd be a good question to ask him. Would it's it? very interesting. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, but that's that that's the situ- that's the technology today, uh, you know. In in five or ten years, who knows where we'll be? In twenty years, who knows where we'll be? So well, you face you face this very interesting possible future, where in near future, where in our best athletes are all people who've suffered terrible uh, tragedies in their past because they're the ones who've had the had the. Uh, the major augmentations that, that would allow that happen, and, and that would be a transitional phase before people just start doing them specifically to get those kinds of capabilities. You know, and, and the funny thing is that we'll probably have this horrified middle, you know, middle period between that time where you know where our best athletes are these people that have suffered suffered these horrible tragedies, and then and then you know where we accept that and people actually make the choice to you know get artificial legs or whatever. But don't you know that there'll be this period of time where we start to suspect? You know, it seems like a lot of people are having these terrible accidents. Oh, look, I, you know, I, I'm sorry. Having having had uh, reconstructive surgery personally, I don't understand how people can voluntarily even go for cosmetic surgery. Right. No less, you know, uh, but when you see these athletes who go in for augmentative surgeries. <sighs> Who, there's a lot who, of money involved, PJ. There's an awful lot of money involved. Exactly right, and and they're looking at you know changing not just their lives but their families' lives, and for the opportunity to play what ten years, twenty max of ball, um, they're willing to to do an awful lot to change themselves and to as you were talking steroids, shorten their lives. Yeah. That's one of the things I find staggering, that these people are actually willing to shorten their lives for this. But maybe in talking about all this, are we kind of focusing on what is the uh, the, the, the outer edge of this and and not really the, the, the main area where this kind of activity is taking place? Uh, that's, the, that's very true. I mean, the, the, the main area is, is uh, alleviating suffering, which is what Tyler had said before. You know, I... Study Buddhism come from that tradition, and for me, it's the same thing. It's why I've been always attracted to these ideas because I've always been interested in the idea of alleviating suffering. You know, how do we create a society where the maximum number of people are as healthy and happy as possible? Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk about let's talk about that. How do we create that society, Tyler? Oh God! <laughs> are, you, are you serious? <laughs> oh, by the way, in the final few minutes of the show, the questions get increasingly harder. Right? <laughs> this is when you realize we need augmented brains. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord! No, that's that's. I'm not a. I'm not really a futurist. Um, I, again, I try to keep things very simple because I. I don't think it's uh, reasonable from our present perspective, and I, I suppose this relates to. Um, certainly where we are right now and and how much we do not understand to act as if we have um, clear answers to those kinds of questions. So I'm more focused on laying foundations that would, uh, in my assessment, increase the likelihood uh, that we can try to answer those questions and tackle these problems and 
um, alleviate, you know, change or improve civilization to move it away from a lot of the unacceptable you know, characteristics that it has right now, whether it's the, the massive stockpiles of nuclear weapons or people, four billion of us, living on $3 a day. So I, I would never even try to um, approach that question. Uh, it's, uh, well, that, that, and it was unfair. But I'll tell you what, let me, let me scale it way back. And yeah. I'm going to throw this one out to everybody, um, and I'll start with uh, myself because uh, no one's asked me any toughies yet. But let's let's all suggest um, one thing we'd like to see in a in a completely transformed society. Let's let's all suggest one thing that sure. we would be looking for that, uh, that that we'd like to see. And I'll go first because uh, um, I have no idea what it would be. Let me think. Um, uh, I, I, actually, I do, and it, it would be um, the the limitations that we that we normally today think of as uh, poverty would be eliminated. That's that's the that is the uh, idealistic society of the future that that I look forward to. And it doesn't mean that <clears throat> that there would be no shortages, and it doesn't mean that there would not be a concept within that world of poverty, but that the, the idea that we have of, of it now, which I think you've articulated very well, Tyler, um, the, 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 the just appalling statistic of the children who die every year because they can't get water, right? right. That, in, in, you know, if, if I were going to model the perfect society, I don't know everything that would, that, that would exist within it, but those kinds of shortcomings would be gone. So, mm-hmm. so that's mine. It, okay, who, yeah, who else it, has one? I don't, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. This is certainly a question that we need a lot of people asking right now. And, uh, for example, Foresight Institute, Christine Peterson, Eric Drexler, with their Foresight Vision Weekend, they have been asking these questions since 1986, 1987 or so. And we need a lot more people in the world asking these kind of questions right now to help us plan because if you take two technologies, for example, artificial intelligence and nanotechnology, I think that there's a lot of already good evidence, good argumentation to think that uh, what science will make possible in the coming decades will really change uh, the nature of how we can use resources and a lot of other things. So, yeah, they certainly are the right questions. But go ahead. Okay. The thing I would want, Phil, I mean, uh, you know, put it on my wish list, obviously, is uh, superintelligence because that leverages everything else. Um, you know, one, you're, you're the man who would ask the genie in the bottle to have unlimited, the, of his three wishes to say unlimited wishes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> however, however, but no, no, Stephen, I've got to call, call you on that one because I'm not talking about uh, uh, a wish list for uh, an improved humanity, but for okay. society in particular. So, so tell me what a smarter society would be. What, how would that... Uh, you, you already got poverty too. Um, hmm. See, that's why I went first. I have <laughs> yeah, I'm you took poverty for yourself. Um, yeah. Hmm. Um, I, I would. I, I would. I would want. Uh, obviously, freedom to be a uh, would be a big part of that. I guess. Uh, let me go with peace. Let me go with peace. Um, a, I think a, a smarter society and a. Uh, and a more, and I'm talking globally, um, would be would be a society where um, problems are solved uh, less with less with guns and more with uh, and more with uh, you know dealing with one another on on a uh, you know on more equal footing. So, I, yeah, I'd, I'd have to go with that. Well, I like that one. And astounding as it may seem, uh, one of the transitions right along with the. Uh, 
the 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 to the flint effect. <laughs> some of these other things we talk. Okay, some people's IQs are going up slower than others. Clearly, <laughs> um, it's just your ability uh, to talk, Phil. <laughs> is, uh, there there actually is an argument that uh, that violence per capita has decreased considerably, uh, and yeah. and that it is on the downslide right now. So uh, it's it's not out of the realm of possibility to think that that trend might continue and that it might. Uh, that that a a better society might be one that uh, that that somehow encourages that trend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a good a good book on that subject is Robert Wright's Non Zero: The Logic of Human Destiny. Great right. book, great book. Okay, others. PJ, uh, Tyler, either of you have thoughts uh, on what? I the... would have to say, I would love to see, and again, this is my own thing, uh, the growth of empathy among people worldwide to accept that we're all different, we all deserve to be different, and that we can all relate to the fact that we're all people fundamentally who are individuals. Because if we can stop saying that they're bad and we're good because they're not us, I think that'll go a long way to changing the world. Well, if they would just do that, PJ, I mean, <laughs> if they'll do it, I'll do it too. No. You're asking me to unilaterally disarm. <laughs> got to start yeah. somewhere. Uh, yeah. But Let peace do, begin with me. Right, you know, but, but I, do, I, I do think I'm that forced. the entire idea of, um, of, of empathy is something, you know, we, you know I, we've all had this conversation before, but it's, it's in an essence, the basis of everything. It's the basis of how we relate. And if we can't, if we can't just all get along, um, we'll we'll continue to have problems. And and they can not just be problems. You know, it, it, this is not just um, global. This is this is local. These are these are issues of of any kind of conflict. Mm. And I wonder if. It, that idea, the idea of increasing empathy, isn't uh, a precursor, isn't a, a just a requisite thing that would have to be in place if we were to take on poverty seriously, or if we were to abolish conflict. Not abolish; that's never going to happen. But if we were to work towards the kind of peace that uh, that, that Stephen was talking about, it would seem that this would be the uh, the catalyst that. That, that would enable that to happen. It would, it would certainly be necessary. Yes, it would be. It would certainly be foundational to it. Yes. And if, in fact, violence is decreasing, if violent conflict is on the downside, does that mean can we conclude, or is it uh, infer um, that people have become more empathetic, or that empathy is is on the rise currently? Well, they certainly believe that 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 is the case, um, and you can. Just a, just the fact that society has changed to such an extent over the past, let's say, couple thousand years, be it um, the the place of women, the place of religion, the place of sexual preference, the you know you can name all of these areas which were extremely marginalized in previous societies which are no longer marginalized in our societies, or at least if someone is marginalizing them, there's at least someone standing up going, hey, that's not fair. Right. Hmm. Um, which didn't exist. 
centuries ago. Uh, there's definitely been a liberalization, and that's been through communications. That's I, I think almost that that's only a, through communications. I think that that's a, a, exactly right. I think that it's it's harder to hate someone you know. Definitely. If you if you're in if you communicate either you know because you know you're you're trading economically or you know on the internet I mean just whatever if there's if there are open lines of communication and you know you're hearing from other people you it it just it, it's just harder to hate them I mean if it, you know if if uh, but if you're sitting in a society that's a closed society. And your life is terrible, and you realize your life is terrible, and then the only people you're hearing from are the elites that want to blame somebody else for how bad your society is. Then it's real easy to sit in that society and hate whoever it is that is is cast as the bad guy. Whoever you're told to hate, exactly. Yeah, whoever right. you're told to hate. Well, I'm supposed to hate these. Oh, they're they're the reason that we're doing so poorly. Well, yeah, I hate them because here here I sit in this poor situation. But maybe that's another way of saying that that kind of xenophobia is only possible when the other is truly, truly the other. As soon as you've got some common context with that person, you, they're, they're not the other as much as they were anymore. And then suddenly there's there's this possibility for empathy with them. Absolutely. But by the same token, never forget that anybody can be turned into the other in the blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that's always, so, to me, shattering. I'll leave it to the one woman on the phone to say. <laughs> got one woman on the show. That kind of thing. Yeah, you, you just turned her into the other, Phil. Not a shame. See, that, that's that not... was the point. <laughs> Very well done, Phil. Um, oh. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but, but it's but, that sort of stuff, right? I mean, that's yeah, absolutely. And and, and it, it, we're actually wired for it. That's the part, you know, when I joke about. Yeah, I really want an augmented brain. Um, wouldn't it be nice if we weren't wired for that anymore? Um, it, it's fascinating to me that how how all of us are programmed for it, and we have to consciously fight it. We have to consciously override our you know what was a uh, an ancient and at the time necessary yeah. programming. If it was my tribe against your tribe, and all the resources were slim. Okay. That was survival, but it's not about just sheer survival anymore. We, we as 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 a species, we live in a non-zero world, right? We have evolved past it. Mm-hmm. Problem is getting our brains to realize we've evolved past it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay, so now have we beaten this to death, Tyler, or do you have one more pillar of perfect society that you? Can... Um, rather, rather than uh, giving my one thing, I, I guess I'll make a general point about how I would like to see more people moving in the direction of trying to have metrics along these things. But, uh, for example, tracking global trends, tracking mm. how we're doing in relation to macro-scale measurements of the state of our humanity across the board. Now, there's some of this going on. If you look at the Millennium Development Goals, uh, there's some of uh, Jeremy Glenn, for example, releases this report, State of the Future, that talks about trends, different scenarios. But I'm just, as far as a global community people who look to track uh, how we're doing when it comes to a, a wide set of uh, the greatest problems facing humanity. I, I, don't really, I don't know of anything like that, so I, I think that would be interesting. Uh, a, lot of, a lot more thought would need to go into it, uh, but, but I could see a value in having that as a banner uh, to rally around for a lot of people. Well, uh, Tyler... Know, when- Oh, go ahead, Steve. Uh, Tyler, we have a, uh, a a friend of the show in the chat room, uh, Matt Doing, who uh, 
He's 23 years of age, and uh, he's he's saying here in the chat room that um, he, he's looking at these and thinking, well, you know, I, I I try not to imagine these issues as being part of my personal future, and I, I think he was uh, he's responding to some of the risks that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you, if whether we're talking about risks or talking about opportunities, um, I mean, for a guy who's say just 23. Mm-hmm. What would you say to him as far as what he, you know, what he should be prepared for? Should try to, you know, how how should he be looking at these issues? So it would be good to get more context, but in general, I I would like to see a lot more people thinking about as large a scope of impact that they could have. I mean, with the with the hope that we share common values about what we're wanting to work toward. You know, the golden one of the golden precepts from you know, ancient Buddhist scriptures to live to benefit mankind is the first step. And to see how we can do that with as much leverage as possible based on our knowledge at any given time. So if you have that, if you try to have as large a perspective as you can when it comes to uh, working to improve uh, the human condition, I think that it must inevitably lead someone to taking seriously uh, some of the greatest risks uh, to humanity, and as far as how that might be relative to his personal life, well, he can reorient his actions around, again, to the best of his knowledge, ways that he can improve the chances that we can solve these problems if, in fact, he wants to, if he wants to have as much impact as he can. That might be one way that, that I would try to connect with him. Mm-hmm. And, and getting back to uh, your, your earlier point about metrics, I think that is tr- tremendously powerful. The the, the idea that, um, that that we need to be looking at the dials, right, as as we go. Yeah. That yeah. Um, we, we used to have. I, I used to do um, process management training at the phone company many years ago, and one of our old chestnuts was you cannot improve what you can't measure. Right, and it, 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 one of one of my analogies to that is uh, people trying to lose weight. You, you have this idea that you want, you want to lose weight. Can you imagine if you never stepped on a scale and if you had no idea what your waist size was? Right. How you would ever be able to track whether you were making progress on something like that? And that's a silly example, but it but it 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 it, it presents to people the, the the kind of thing we're. The, the, the kind of thing we're talking about. We, if we if we begin to measure even a few, what we consider to be very very crucial factors, and right. and we notice that the things that we're doing are moving the indicator in the right direction, then we know we've made progress, and we can and we can build on that. If if we're not measuring those things, how would we know? Right. Yeah. You have to define success. Now, I guess the question is, how far down, how, uh, to what level can that be taken? Are there, are there measurable things that individuals can be doing to, uh, uh, to, to help bring these kinds of uh, changes about? Well, yeah, I mean, a, a huge, huge range. If, if this, going back to the 23-year-old in the chat room, if he is a student at a university or wherever, uh, then he can work to start a student group of people who just come together on a monthly basis to talk about these issues, or he can share um, educational material with others, just begin a dialogue with more people, talk to professors. I mean, there's a immense range of things that people can do, obviously. Uh, And, um, you know, I think that a lot of it, I mean, it's going to take a massive collaboration in order to really begin moving things forward. And that's not really 
taking place right now in the transhumanist community in any concerted way. You know, if you look at the massive collaboration around Wikipedia or the Human Genome Project or SETI at Home, uh, I suspect that we would move the dial forward a lot more if we were able to have something clearly defined, a project clearly defined like that, where you, you create a vision that, again, inspires a wide range of people to work toward achieving it. So that's, that's a couple of my thoughts on that. Good stuff. And Matt, uh, I, I know you're listening. So if you uh, if you decide you want to move ahead with with something, let us know what it is. If there are resources we can provide, we would uh, we, we would very much like to to do that, and we'd like to hear about any any progress that you make. Well, yeah, I one think, thing is, you, uh, I'm you sorry. Have, you, I mean, just, sorry, real quickly. Definitely, I mean, you have to have a willingness to educate yourself and to, to be disciplined about learning about these things. You, you have just be consistent about that trying to educate yourself as much as you can to have informed opinions. That, that's another basic thing that I would encourage people. I like uh, PJ's uh, uh, history on this. I mean, PJ, you, um, I mean, not, not too long ago, you, were, you wouldn't be considered, a, uh, you weren't a futurist, but you became one. No, I'm a born-again futurist. You, very quickly. <laughs> very quickly you became, you became very, very much involved. Uh, Tell us how quickly you got involved and how that happened. Uh, kind of, and, and maybe that can kind of serve as an example to Matt and others as to, you know, ways to get involved. Well, I was writing a book about what ultimately, I, I guess, is transhumanism. Um, so I started doing research on the internet, and I found the World Transhumanist Association, among other groups, and I started talking to people. Uh, I started corresponding with people. I started corresponding with people like James Hughes directly quite a bit um, to originally as simply looking for research information. And one thing led to another. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, not a journalistic effort since it's fiction, but I, I kind of broke every journalistic law in that I, you know, went, went to what I was writing. <laughs> Discovered that uh, I was much more interested in it, not just as, an area to explore through fiction, but that it was an area to explore, period. Um, you got so involved. I got involved, yeah. Uh-huh. I got involved and I started meeting people. And really it's about connecting. It's about connecting with people, talking with yeah. people, seeing what's available, seeing what your options are, seeing what needs to be done. And, you know, it's it really fundamentally you have to start communicating. Yeah. Absolutely. So we start with uh, communicating. We start with, you know, uh, involving ourselves with others who are concerned about the same things, educating ourselves, and and, and we move from there. Well, I think we're we're coming close to the agenda as it was laid out for us this evening. But I think what I'd like to do now is just uh, go around one time and see if anyone has any anything we didn't get to tonight that that they wanted to talk about, or just uh, generally otherwise any any parting parting thoughts they have, and I'll start with, randomly, Stephen. I wanted to talk, Phil, about uh, the news this week that Craig Venter had um, had sequenced the first artificial genome. And, uh, and I, I, you know, it's 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 just you know random tech news in some ways, but in others, it's it it it, it could it could hit home with transhumanists. Okay, you know, so tie that tie that into our discussion about transhumanism. Well, I mean, once you, once you're able to manipulate DNA to that extent, 
you 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 know you're you're messing with the source code at that point. You can become what what you and to some extent you can become what you want to become. Mm-hmm. And um, that's you know that's obviously that's a long way down the road and things like that. But I mean, the the tools are being demonstrated, and uh, I I think it's 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 really a, it was really landmark news and and you know it's, it's another one of these situations where it's just it's so big I had to think about it a couple of days before even writing about it. It ha- we haven't. We haven't even mentioned it, the speculus yet. We haven't had anything on it on the speculus yet. Now, he, he's created a genome. So does that mean an organism can be produced from that, or how many steps are we from that? Um, it's, a complete, it's a complete DNA sequence of a very simple organism, and uh, the thing that has not yet been done is inserting that back into an organism without, you know, where the DNA had been taken out, put this new artificial DNA in, and see if it works. Um, that to me, I think, is a very important step to see if we got it right. And um, and once they do that, I think you know that's you pretty much are, at that point you're at artificial life. And so then you have to decide, well, what kind of artificial life do we want, and what do we want to do with that. And then there, you know, and all the you have to deal with the risks associated with that. We we create something new. What you know, what does that mean? What you know. Um, is this is this something that could uh, potentially be dangerous and harm the environment and you know, on and on. So, yeah. Well, What's interesting about that is the term artificial life up to now, we've used it to apply to uh, computer viruses, to, to the product of hackers, uh, pro- programs that get carried out across the Internet or that, it, that infect computer networks of uh, different kinds and, and do their damage. So, the, so what, as soon as you hear the term artificial life, it's not an immediately a positive connotation, I don't think, for, for, for most of us. Uh, any of the others on the panel have reflections on this particular breakthrough, how it might fit into what we're talking about this evening? Well, I'm just astounded by how many of these kinds of breakthroughs have been happening lately. Yeah. I don't, it, part of it is, you know, you when you're exposed to, to enough of something, you take more notice of it. But between artificial life and breakthroughs in computing and robotics and just, I, I have to say, I find it very hard to believe when people say, I don't see accelerating change, because I see it all around me. And these kinds of developments are so stunning that if any one of them happened in a period of time, people would go, well, that's the moment that life changed. But, but we'd coming. be one a week, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it was, and a couple of weeks ago, it was, uh, you know, the announcement of the first life extension drug, CERT 501. Yep. And, and, and between those two, we had a heart that was built. Uh, that one, that one blew my mind. That was, yeah. the, that was the moment where everything stopped. Yeah. Um, that was extraordinary. But everything's got to start right back up because there's another one that we'll find out about sometime later this week. That's the... Uh, that's, that's the part that's, that's hard to deal with. Okay, so PJ, while you have the floor, was there anything else that you wanted to get to tonight or any parting oh, no, thoughts? Thank you. Or perhaps this you've been, given us a parting thought. This has been lovely. Okay. <laughs> well, it's always a pleasure having you on. <laughs> Tyler, how about you? Any any uh, topics that you wanted to bring up that we didn't give you an opportunity to or uh, um, other thoughts that you have here this evening? Yeah, in regard to that breakthrough in synthetic biology, there's a great PDF document available at edge.org, Life, What a Concept. Uh, it's a conversation between, I believe, Freeman Dyson, Craig Venter, and George Church, uh, Seth Lloyd, and a few others. 
uh, edited together by John Brockman. It explores um, a lot of the potential implications of synthetic biology and genomics and science in general. It's a pretty fascinating document. So definitely recommend people check that out. Good stuff. Uh, we'll be sure and uh, put a link uh, up on the uh, show notes for that. Stephen, if you, did you get that uh, URL? Uh, yeah, I'm gonna. Uh, yeah, that'll be all be in the show notes here, and and we'll we'll try to have that up in the next hour or so. At no, the speculist. Yeah, that's about it. Now I, I appreciate this. This was my first time doing one of these. Actually, I've been a little hesitant to do uh, interviews that would go on the internet and be available indefinitely. So that's been fun. Another fast-forward radio first. We've had so many, and yeah, here's yet another one. Well, we're really honored uh, and pleased that uh, you would take the time to uh, to talk with us this evening, Tyler and PJ. Uh, always a pleasure having you on the show. Likewise, Stephen, thank you guys. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and we'll, we'll be calling you again very soon. And Tyler, you know, you'll be hearing from us again too in the near future. So, okay. uh, look forward to that. Um, to all of our listeners, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, those in the chat room, uh, thanks for uh, participating. And we look forward to – oh, Stephen, that's what I was going to say. What have we got going on on the music this evening? <laughs> the the band is Gas House Gorillas. Gas and, House Gorillas. <laughs> and now, the, is that G-O or G-U-E? G-O-R-I-L-L-A-S. And the song is Burglar in the House of Love. It's a, it's a blues song. It, it's, uh, it's lighthearted, so I, I thought it would. It'd be a nice one to play. And, okay, so, we, uh, so, yeah, check out the show notes at The Speculist. That's S-P-C-U-L-I-S-T dot com. And, uh, and our blog dot speculist dot com is uh, if you want to get right straight to the blog. That's sounds great. Do. Well, thank you very much, Stephen, and thank you all. We will look forward to being with you again on the next Fast Forward Radio. Take care, Good night. Tokyo, Yay! <laughs> he said the fish are like my socks. <laughs>
love handles? Do you work hard to stay in shape and eat healthy, yet you can't get rid of stubborn fat? Now there's a clinically proven way to help you look slimmer without surgery or downtime. It's called Sculpture. Sculpture's innovative procedure destroys fat in just 25 minutes with visible results as quickly as six weeks. Sculpture sounds amazing, right? Check it out for yourself by clicking on the banner or go to goodbyefat.com. Are you ready to lose those love handles? Do you work hard to stay in shape and eat healthy, yet you can't get rid of stubborn fat? Now there's a clinically proven way to help you look slimmer without surgery or downtime. It's called Sculpture. Sculpture's innovative procedure destroys fat in just 25 minutes with visible results as quickly as six weeks. Sculpture sounds amazing, right? Check it out for yourself by clicking on the banner or go to goodbyefat.com.